Good evening. I'm very happy to introduce you to this event. My name is Julia Hobsbawm of Editorial Intelligence. I think I'm not alone in having extreme office envy coming here to Edelman's office. And the only reason why Robert is not welcoming you is he's going to speak properly on the panel. Um, Editorial Intelligence regularly puts on events in London, but this is slightly different in that this arose out of an experiment we did in February with partners including Edelman, including Cision, including the Financial Times and the Cass Business School, whereby we thought, what if we took some opinion formers up uh, the motorway to a secluded resort in the middle of the snow by coach and got them to talk about really individuality in a mass age and in particular how it impacts on media, policy, society, etc. And happily, the experiment, also assisted by the likes of the Reuters Institute, worked. It's going to happen again, but we've extended its reach so that in addition to the February event, we're doing a series of year-round seminars, and this is one such series, and this is the inaugural event on Media Today, Media Tomorrow. So all I wanted to do is the housekeeping, which is to remind you that you will be invited to participate after the panellists have spoken, that it is de facto on the record because it's all being podcast and will be on iTunes in about 24 hours. It's also the first event that we have a Twitterer in chief. Edie Lush is here to record everybody's utterances in 140 characters and less. So on that note, I'm sure I've missed some things. Um, We do have a a rapid response news comment event with Sky News tomorrow at Portcullis House on the events in Westminster. And I think it's a testament to how interested people are in the media that on a day like today when really Westminster is the story there are large numbers of people wanting to come here to talk about the media so on that note and to introduce the panel etc here is John Lloyd. Thanks very much Julia. Many um, thanks for coming on a, on a day like this. Uh, it is inauspicious in a way to talk about the decline of the media when uh, the newspapers, the news media in general's fangs are bloody from having been sunk into the backsides of men and women a few hundred yards down the road. Nevertheless, we will discuss uh, our motion today, which is, is the fourth estate in permanent decline, and what can we do about it? Um, It seems that we are, we in the news business, are in something of a crisis, not just in newspapers, but in in broadcast news as well. The loss of audiences, of readers, of viewers, of listeners, but also perhaps more importantly in the short term of advertising gives us in journalism, whatever relationship we have to journalism, the kind of challenge which we really haven't had since the war, I think, certainly in, in my period in journalism. It isn't enough just to wail. Uh, we know the lineaments of the problem. We don't know the solutions yet, but we must, I think, as people interested in the media and working within the media and with a stake in the future of the media and some belief that the media uh, are good for societies and for democracy, we must see uh, what we can do about the second part of the motion tonight. What can we do about it? And you will see on your seats um, a flyer from the Reuters Institute, where I'm Director of Journalism, asking the question, interested in contributing? And you will see then that the Reuters Institute, following up from a report, which you will also see on your seats, 
uh, called What's Happening to Our News, written by Andrew Curry, who's one of the speakers today. But following up from that, what we want to do is to consider the practical steps that can be taken to address the issues in the report's analysis. And we're really working along three main themes on <coughs> enhancing trust in journalism, on finding ways in which journalism can be financed, and on empowering journalism. Now, many of you, uh, some of you will be journalists, others of you will be in public relations and other, uh, other fields of the media, and we would like to call upon your expertise uh, in this work because uh, it's perhaps the most important thing that we'll be doing. So please fill in the form, put your name, email, telephone number, and your specialism, and uh, leave it for us at the end. Now, we have a panel of five. Um, they're all under strict instructions to speak no more than eight or ten minutes, and I will try to hold them to that because we want to, have, we want to finish in about 40 minutes so that we can have the rest of the time until half past eight for discussion. First, uh, I'll introduce them as they speak. First, on my left, is Eleanor Mills, who, in spite of her extreme youth, has had um, a distinguished career on distinguished newspapers, on The Observer and The Sunday Times, and is now the uh, editor of the Saturday edition of The Times. Eleanor. Uh, good evening. Thanks, thanks for coming. Um, it's quite a good day for journalism today, the re resignation of um, the speaker, um, I think, which would show that the fourth estate's in pretty good rude health. Um, and, you know, I would say that is the fourth estate in permanent decline? In emphatically, no. Um, from, from where we sit, kind of looking at what's going on kind of in Fleet Street at the moment. Um, <coughs> this is the first time in 300 years that a speaker has been um, drummed out of Parliament kind of against his will. Um, and that's a, you know, that, that must be directly attributable to the kind of actions of the press in the last uh, 10 days or so. So I think that while, of course, there are, um, there are debates going around about the, um, John Lloyd talked about a decline in readers, a decline in revenue. I think it's not, so if you look at the kind of number of people, millions of people clicking on internet sites um, for news around the world, I don't think there's a decline in readers. Maybe there's a decline in readers in, in, on newsprint. But I think that there's still a massive appetite out there for news, but also for the kind of analysis and comment and bringing a kind of sense to the kind of babble that, um, uh, that newspapers are really there to do. I mean, I was, I was interested hearing Cameron on the radio this morning talking about making all his, to his Tory MP, uh, the Shadow Cabinet, um, file all their expenses online. And I thought, well, you know, that's great, but how many of us in our busy daily lives have actually got time to kind of go and log on to Tory, you know, homepage and look up exactly what Michael Gove's been buying from Oka this week? And, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, the point is it's great that they're doing it, but the reason why you need journalists is because we're paid to actually go and do exactly that. And it's all very well having all this information published, but it's often published in such a way that it's quite hard to actually kind of work out what's going on. And the point about journalists and the good ones, particularly the ones in specialist areas, <coughs> is that they know where, you know, something's listed as, um, you know, upkeep of, say, Douglas Hogg's public space. Actually, that's probably moat maintenance if you kind of dig into to it a little bit further. So I think that I think that although there is now an enormous amount of information floating around there on the web, um, the, you, newspaper, newspapers more than ever act as a filter. And the fact that 
um, you know, New York Times Online or the Times Online or the Telegraph, particularly the last week, um, are getting kind of massive hits on their site shows that there is an appetite for the kind of filter that newspapers at their best require, which makes sense of the amazing amount of kind of information, and we all have a kind of sense of information overload all the time, and that is still why people turn to newspapers rather than often going to the kind of raw sources of the data on the websites because they just haven't got time to kind of wade through it all themselves. So I'm a great believer that the newspaper <coughs> as filter has a kind of, you know, um, a kind of a rude and healthy future ahead. How that's funded, I think, is much more problematic. Um, Rupert Murdoch said that you know he thinks that we are going to have to pay for content in some form from the web. I think it's a bit like kind of going back to say when the the, the printing press. I was doing a bit of a research this afternoon, like a good journalist, and uh, the first printing press was uh, set up in Westminster, just down the road, and in 1476. And then the first newspaper started in. Um, well, that was regular was in 1690, which was the, called the Worcester Barrows Worcester Journal. And I'm proud to say that my grandfather worked on the, the Worcester Journal. It became the kind of Evesham Journal. It's still Barrows. Um, so I feel a kind of a link to that kind of beginning of that newspaper thing. And I also feel proud of working on the Times, which has been around since uh, 1788. So I think that the, the fact that that newspapers, you know, as filter, as a medium for discussing the the main affairs of the day have lasted that long I think that they will you know that there's there's a kind of general kind of human appetite for news before newspapers there were town criers people want to know what's going on out there and I don't think that's that's really going to change but I do think that we're looking at a kind of radical reshaping of how that information is received I think the old model of you know, um, buying somebody buying an advert, which then funds a bureau chief in you know Baghdad or a fashion spread or you know a criminal kind of correspondent. That that's not going to that's not going to endure. But I think that that Murdoch's kind of broader point that the kind of content that newspapers um, create has has value, and if we want to, you know, we we realise it has value. It takes time to dig out stories. It takes you know, time to kind of work out what's going on or to people who, people who are brilliant writers. And at the moment, all the websites um, and the television, whatever, are all running off the fact that the old model is still a bit viable, which is what's funding all these websites. But if, if the kind of old, you know, newspapers, the actual physical things stop existing, then all of that free content on the web won't be free anymore. I was talking to um, Anne Spatman, who was head of Times Online for a long time, she was saying, actually, Times Online is quite profitable because, you know, none of the journalistic costs appear on our cost code at all. You know, we're taking all this stuff, which, which you know, as far as the online is concerned, it's completely free because all the salaries being paid still be paid by the newspaper. And so as we switch, it, you know, I'm sure inevitably we will get newspapers not in printed form from the newsagent or subscriptions. I would urge you to take out a Times subscription. Very good value. Um, but <laughs> as, as we switch to not actually reading it in kind of physical form, you'll have to much more see a kind of model for how we pay for that content um, when we get it electronically, whether that's through some kind of 21st century or 22nd century kind of Blackberry, Kindle kind of descendant. I and mean, I think we just don't really know how any of this stuff's going to work. If we think back to you know 1997 when Craigslist was first invented, who could possibly have envisaged then a, a kind of swap thing 
living in a kind of, you know, small Californian town was going to become the kind of complete worldwide phenomenon it has. Or Facebook, you know, people thinking, oh, how can we tell our mates on the other side of the dorm room when the party is, was going to become a kind of complete worldwide phenomenon. So I think we're still very much in a kind of experimental phase on the web and in media, and that all of that will, it will kind of shake down over the kind of years to come. But I'm essentially optimistic that human beings need news, they need filters, they need to be able to share and talk about what's going on, and that newspapers in their kind of very broader sense will go on having a strong role for, you know, certainly, you know, we've said they've been around since 1690, I feel confident that there'll be some kind of news disseminating newspapery kind of thing, maybe not like this, in 500 years' time. Thank you, Eleanor. That's uh, a good start. Um, we, uh, we don't know the future of journalism, but we know it will have a future. Uh, Andrew uh, Curra, who's our next speaker, wrote the pamphlet that you have in your seat, the uh, Reuters Institute Challenge, What's Happening to Our News. And part of that, I was associated with it, part of that is rather more pessimistic than Eleanor has been. So we, we hope that... Um, in the future, we'll find more cause for, for optimism. Andrew's a, a lecturer at Oxford University. He is, as I say, the, uh, the writer of uh, what's, what hap what's Happening to Our News, and he's the next speaker. Andrew. Thank you, John. Um, good evening, everyone. Sorry, it's a bit of an echo. Um, so it was this, this motion that uh, led us to write the book uh, last year, um, which was published in January and sort of coincided, interestingly, with, with the, the recession and the media crisis. So it's, we were lucky with our timing, in a sense. Um, but on the basis of the research uh, we did for that book, my uh, personal view is that the fourth estate, as we traditionally understood it, is, is in decline. Um, whether this is a permanent decline or whether the fourth estate could be reinvented for a digital age, I think, depends on the speed, the range, and the quality of responses, both by the industry and potentially by government, controversially. Um, so overall, I'm optimistic that the fourth state will uh, evolve and thrive, not wither, but um, it's by no means clear to me that the forces of market competition or innovation will get us there on, on our own. So I think we need to consider a range of options which we uh, look at in the book, uh, including pub maybe forms of public subsidy, especially if the civic um, dimensions of the fourth state are to be sustained, given the market pressures we face. So just um, to extend this view, I wanted to make two points, uh, more detailed points. Um, the first is to pick up on um, Eleanor's uh, example about the internet being um, a source of information. I think we have to take into account that the, the, our access to information about the world now is, is uh, unrivaled. We have an unprecedented variety of information um, and news sources. And the following examples, I think, capture that, that shift. Um, Kevin Kelly, an internet guru, estimates that all of the information ever produced by humans could be stored in 50,000 terabytes, which is uh, an astonishing fact, really, if you think about the, the range of literature and film and science. That could all be stored on one hard disk that could store 50,000 terabytes. If you compare that to the current volume of internet traffic that um, flows each week, that's now estimated to be 2 million terabytes every week, um, which roughly translates to 100,000 years of, of DVD-quality video. So we, uh, we definitely live in this age of information overload, and I think you know, because of that, 
that digital chaos. The, um, the newspaper's an important um, island of peace, as William Powers recently termed it. But um, although we're awash in information and news, I think the, it's important to recognise that the basic um, operating model, the economics that underpin the professional creation of content, are steadily being eroded um, by the web and by other demogra- demographic trends. And I think the economics of the fourth state especially are in peril, especially at a local scale, which is um, a hot topic for Ofcom and the Digital Britain report. So the basic problem is that the recession is amplifying the effects of a much broader structural shift in, in, the, way, in the way we consume media, um, which is seeing consumers migrate to the web and advertisers following them. Uh, the problem is consumers expect content to be free, whilst advertisers want much lower rates around the news. And the further challenge is that despite the popularity of the news, um, in the current information economy, news actually gets relatively little attention. Um, it's sites like MySpace, Facebook, um, Second Life, the BBC, which get the attention. Um, today in the UK, we spend about 30% of our time at just 20 websites, amazingly, none of which are commercial, commercially funded news websites. So what's strange is that as our, as, our, as our digital choices are expanding, our attention seems to be narrowing. We're sort of, in a sense, paralysed by this information overload and maybe going to sites that aren't about the news. So I think that the fourth state does face a funding crisis in the future. Um, the web doesn't pay like old media. Um, to be sure, there are new innovations like uh, geo-targeted advertising that can be sent to your iPhone and to place relevant advertising around different news websites for users around the world. Also, behavioural advertising is, is a premium product which uh, could deliver profits for news organisations. And um, as Rupert Murdoch recently announced, micropayments and subscriptions clearly have a future, but I think that's mainly for more specialist, um, time-sensitive publishers. So I think the overall outlook is that we describe in the book is that there's less money around the news in the future, uh, less money to support uh, serious news written in the public interest. Um, And I think this is already hitting the fourth estate, uh, especially in terms of training. Training budgets across the industry are being cut or suspended or... or, or, um, or just frozen, and overall, I think there's fewer, fewer and fewer places where journalists um, are given the space and the time to uh, think, you know, to um, to develop the context, to understand co- very complex issues, um, and that I think that raises long-term questions about the quality of the news. There's um, a greater reliance on other other providers of news like PR, um, uh, the wires, citizen journalism, so. Um, and it, so, so overall, it seems to me the new emphasis in a lot of the newsrooms around the country is that there's an emphasis on chasing clicks, chasing uh, web attention, um, and trying to produce more and more content with, with technology and fewer staff. Um, and in the book, we talk about this potential shift to digital windsocks, people, publishers becoming uh, windsocks that, that don't necessarily follow very clear editorial um, values, but they follow what's popular. And I think um, everyone, including the BBC, has been affected by that, by that pressure. Of course, the, um, the counter-argument is that the web is going to fill the gap and enable some kind of fifth estate, a network of networks, which is far more efficient than old media. Um, but I, I don't think that the web can sustain an equivalent, an institutional equivalent to a free press. Um, on balance, the web seems to be parasitic rather than generative, um, and that is borne out by data from a recent study at Cornell and Stanford, which found that fewer than 4% of news stories um, originate in the blogosphere. In other words, you know, 
people often claim that blogs are going to be the next news gatherers, but very few people are actually doing the hard work on the ground, asking the difficult questions, doing the digging. We need the journalists for that, and it seems that the funding for that is, is drying up. So the web's very good at repackaging and aggregating, um, but as Paul Starr argued in a recent piece for Prospect, I think available this week, um, you can't aggregate what um, isn't being written. Also, I think there's a risk of a, a digital divide around the news. Um, for example, a fully digital news media uh, will obviously exclude those groups in society which lack the skills and the resources that are required to access and make the most of the web. Um, as a result, the news might even become means-tested in some regions where newspapers um, become broadband only. You know, Bath, for example, uh, the Bath, Bath Chronicle is the only newspaper in the city, and day-to-day reporting is now only available online um, in that area. So my second point linked to those problems is that the commercial model by itself, I don't think, is, is able to protect those aspects of the fourth state, those civic aspects, um, that are most valuable from a democratic perspective. And I think given the scale of the market pressures and the likely price of uh, any news gaps that may emerge across the UK, maybe we need to consider new subsidies for the fourth estate. Um, but before we get on to remedies, I think it's important to take into account three issues. Uh, first of all, I think we need a much clearer sense of what we're trying to save and why. It's a very powerful and emotive argument at the moment with each side um, arguing different things about local media especially, uh, but it's not clear what, we think we need a clearer definition of, of local journalism especially and what journalism brings to us as citizens and why that needs defending. Obviously it doesn't make any sense to defend outdated business models or um, entrench inefficient practices. Secondly, I think that any support uh, from public money should, would need to be in sufficiently indirect and arm's length to preserve the independence of the fourth state. Um, it would also need to be sufficiently broad to enable a range of models. Um, there's no silver bullet. And third, the receipt of public support should come with a range of responsibilities, I think, for the, for the fourth state. If they're going to receive these financial privileges, maybe there should be a clearer definition of uh, civic responsibility, meeting civic goals rather than financial goals. So uh, in the book, we talk about a range of um, possible initiatives, tax relief maybe to direct support towards training. Maybe training programs could be... Um, for journalists could become tax deductible to enable, uh, to provide an incentive for news publishers to, to, to invest more in that area. Um, so I'm being asked to wrap up, just be quick. <laughs> uh, public service advertising was another issue that which arise in our report, uh, maybe to provide a lower rate of tax around advertising. Um, in return, publishers might be expected to uh, maintain certain levels of news coverage. And finally, uh, just to wrap up, um, I think it's also important to try and envision other non-commercial institutions in the future of the fourth state. Uh, these might include trusts, charities, community interest companies, a range of other organisations that aren't necessarily driven just by profit. And I think um, the government could take some steps to, to enable that uh, to come into being. So, sorry for overrunning. Andrew, thank you. Uh, we'll come, there's, I mean, we want to concentrate on or to, to focus on what we can do, what can be done about the, the crisis, um, and we'll come back to that in discussion. Uh, we've had the optimist and the pessimist, and now we have Claire Enders, who uh, is not a journalist or an academic, but a businesswoman who founded Enders Analysis uh, uh, 12 years ago. Uh, he previously worked in senior corporate development and strategy, uh, and Enders Analysis is now one of the leading um, uh, analysts of media trends uh, in the country. 
Claire. Um, thank you so much. And I, I should also declare a personal interest because my husband runs, <coughs> runs DC Thompson, which publishes the Aberdeen Press and Journal, the Sunday Post, and the Dundee Courier, and is also one of the leading. Way! <laughs> Wahey, I think it is. Wahey. Wahey. Don't, don't try and do Sorry. the Scots accent. Sorry, I know, it's hopeless. Anyway, so, so I, I have a, a deep personal interest, in the, particularly in the future of the local press, but also in, in the regional press more, more widely. And we do a great deal of work in the sector, helping companies mm -hmm. to, to cope with the manifold changes that I will summarize as I'm, they're probably in the book, but essentially, what we have um, across the board is a, is a decline in consumers' interest in long form, anything long form, um, anything printed on paper, and anything paid for. And that's visible in magazines, it's visible in books, and also in newspapers. I don't want to give you the gory details, but suffice it to say that magazine advertising will also be down by about 40% this year. Uh, book sales in the US and the UK are trending 20% down by value year on year. Uh, and of course, in the newspaper space, we've seen a rapid acceleration in the decline of circulation uh, in the regionals in particular, now down to 10%, but also uh, the, the Sundays and so forth. And so we, we are seeing a, an industrial revolution in a nanosecond. Um, now, what <coughs> is actually going to happen uh, going forward according to our forecasts? Is, is, is that <clears throat> in 2015, the circulation of newspapers will be approximately half what it was in 1990. Um, and by 2010, national and regional press advertising will have declined by approximately 50% since 2001. So we're looking at extraordinarily challenging conditions. Um, and of course, newspaper advertising itself is losing relevance if all of those forecasts come to be. Um, newspaper advertising will have gone from 35% of total UK advertising to 15% within the space of a decade. So what is happening um, is that there, are, there have been some crux moments, uh, radical changes not just in consumption but also in distribution and also in, in latter things such as print costs which have gone up, uh, sorry paper costs which has gone up by 20% year on year. Um, we have already seen 10% of UK newspaper rolls go in the industry. We predict that in the next five years, 50% of the industry, which also includes local advertising agencies, the people who supply the artwork, blah, 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 those jobs will have <coughs> gone. Um, the, <coughs> the future is, is, is obviously ghastly, but um, I, am, I am hopeful about one thing. Firstly, that <laughs> the medium will resize itself. Um, over 60% of all costs of newspapers are people. I think that there will be radically different salary um, and career expectations in the young, and I think that they will, and I hope, that they will care enough about the fabric of society <coughs> to actually go for it. Uh, the uh, 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 multi-skilling and so forth, all of these initiatives are all very helpful to the longevity of the medium. Um, but nonetheless, I think that there's a lot to ponder in terms of many of the points made by Andrew. Uh, which are that um, you know there is a culture of living in the now. There's a lack of historical interest. Websites change. Uh, people don't dig. Um, as the guy who created Wired said, you don't see any bloggers down at the courthouse. 
and as someone who understands the, the role of uh, the local press, particularly in relation to the digital divide that Andrew was speaking of, we have reached saturation of the broadband market at 60% of the population, which leaves 40% uh, largely unable to get down to the news agent uh, easily, and obviously living in a world where you may not be aware of it, but the Royal Mail suspended and indeed terminated all distribution of newspapers to the door in 2004, which is a, a further uh, divide uh, for those people who are incapacitated or cannot afford a PC or don't want to subscribe to broadband and so on. So I think the digital divide is a very real one, particularly because the people who are most affected by it live in those communities that are most affected by the decline of the local communities and also, of course, the government's decision to withdraw progressively all recruitment advertising from the local press, which decision it took in 2004 and which was, in fact, the beginning of the, de of the death knell of the local press. And I don't see how we can go back from that. Um, in relation to online, Online is no substitute whatsoever, not just because um, all the digital operations get their content for free, that's a classic accounting trick, but it's also because of the different use of the, of, of the medium. Yes, internet users may be plentiful upon the planet Earth, but they average five minutes a month on newspaper websites versus readers who average half an hour a day with the product that they love and carry around and nurse, and moreover, People online, as we know, only read the same damn stuff, uh, whichever website they're looking at. It's the news headlines, it's sports, it's celebs. Nobody reads Simon Jenkins online. I can tell you, I've checked. So, um, don't tell him. But it's just, a, it is what, well, the words that we've used for the people in the newspaper industry that we advise is, don't think of it as a substitute, it's something else, right? It's an add-on. It's no substitute whatsoever for long form, for depth, for the kinds of digging and calm that people have to do. I myself deal with journalists. I give my work for free to journalists. I get other people to pay us large sums of money, and I give it away to all the journalists who want it. And I spend my days trying to orient them towards what these business issues mean. And they're struggling. Um, and these are very, very well-educated, very, very clever people um, who, in another life, would probably be me. But thank God I'm me and not them. So I think that the outlook, therefore, is extremely bleak but that we will have newspapers still publishing for one reason, and that's because they're incredibly attractive trophy assets. When Rupert Murdoch bought the Wall Street Journal, he paid $5 billion for a business that made no money. Right? Its income declined by 33% in the first year of ownership by Rupert Murdoch, and it is a trophy asset. The Times loses money hand and fist. It will lose even more money this year. Um, the Guardian loses money, as we know, on a permanent basis. Uh, the Independent has just been given a stay of execution by its banks. It'll still be with us for a few more months. Um, and, uh, the F and the Telegraph <coughs> is also a trophy asset. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's had a good shine this week or the last few weeks, but, you know, let's not forget who owns it. And the FT is also owned as a trophy asset by Pearson. It does not earn a return on capital employed. So the newspaper business as a whole is uneconomic. The national press business is uneconomic and is actually owned as, as, as trophy assets. Um, I, I do not buy any government intervention in the sector. I think it will come at a terrible price. I think that the independence and the separateness of the voices and opinions of these trophy assets is something that consumers love. The government made a move on the newspaper industry in 2004 to get them to sign a code of impartiality. What do you think that would do to newspapers? It would kill them stone dead. They'd all become little sound bites, meaningless sound bites like they are on the beat. 
So that's no future, and I, I firmly resist it and believe that the newspaper industry must find its own solutions to its own ills. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, we started off brightly. We've, uh, we got more pessimistic, and now, as you said, <laughs> the future is, of course, ghastly. Um, but I'm, I am glad about one thing you said. It was a tremendous presentation, but I'm glad about one thing you said above all, which was to bring up the um, D.C. Thompson. Uh, I grew up in the, uh, in the main area of D.C. Thompson, which was Fife, just south of where they, where they published in Dundee, and they published the People's Friend, uh, which was romantic still stories, going still going strong, romantic stories for, for women, and they published The Dandy and the Beano, still, yes, I hope, going strong. And they published, above all, the Sunday Post, which had a readership of something like, when I was a kid, 85% uh, of, of the Scottish readership, which was the highest saturation of any newspaper in the history of the world. <laughs> and the reason why they had such a, high, such a huge circulation was that they had only good news. And they had two brilliant comic strips, one which was called Ur Wally, yep. which was about a working-class lad still going, still going strong in probably Glasgow, and the other one was about a working-class family in Glasgow called the, the Bruins, <laughs> of whom the rather grumpy father was called Gordon. <laughs> Gordon Brun. I'm sure you noticed that in Private Eye, there are two lots of D.C. Thompson characters currently being used. One is Lord Snooty, yeah. right, and the other is the Bruins, and they both fit fit the types. Absolutely perfectly. perfectly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, D.C. Thompson. No, it, it is, uh, I must say about D.C. Thompson, this is a company that refused to eat its own lunch, or let me tell you, it was always a divorce issue with my husband whenever they tried anything funny. But basically, they are the best performing media company in Europe by profitability, and they have not done anything stupid. So it's great loyalty to your husband. Um, uh, we, we want to bring in uh, a man who I hope will shed a little, little ray of sunshine, Robert Phillips. Robert is our host. Uh, he's the, <laughs> the chief executive officer of Edelman in this country. Robert. Um, I, yeah, I suppose I can be slightly optimistic, um, and in true form of someone who runs a PR firm, I'm going to agree with Eleanor, uh, agree with Andrew, and agree with Claire. Um, I, I agree with Eleanor that there is an optimism there. Um, I agree with Andrew that there is a structural shift occurring, and I agree with Claire that we'll learn to live with the economics of it uh, as it nets out. I think the point is, is that we are in a state of accelerated flux rather than a state of permanent decline. Um, and uh, one of my friends and colleagues uh, over there, uh, Steve Rebell, um, is uh, one of the, I think, big thinkers in the digital space. I think he would be uh, rather upset to be called one of the 96% who are parasitic rather than generative um, as, a, as a blogger. Um, and I think I would see him as a 4% generative blogger. Uh, but he talks about a media reforestation taking place. And I think that's a very nice way of analysing the current landscape. Um, how we're going in a transition from atoms, which are print, to bits, which is digital. And within that reforestation process, we're seeing the erosion of tangible media. We're seeing a blending of news and information sources. We're seeing a rise of search and aggregation technologies. And ultimately, we're seeing the changing shape of content. And I don't think that says that the fourth estate is in permanent decline. I think that says that the fourth estate is, is morphing into a different uh, environment and a different world order. The other area in which I think we can draw optimism from pessimism is on the issue of trust. And those of you who know Edelman well, or even vaguely well, may know of the trust barometer that we publish annually at the World Economic Forum. And for the past 10 years, we've been studying trust in media, trust in 
government trust in business. And trust in media um, is very, very, very low, uh, which could be an indicator that the fourth estate is in permanent decline. The fact of the matter is that the trust in media has been very, very, very low for as long as we've been studying trust in media. And so nothing has changed. It has forever been thus. Um, and so that, again, is not an indication of uh, decline. It's an indication of the state of opinion around media. And when we come to look at the civic responsibilities of media, which I'll do in a minute, which Andrew mentioned, I think there's some interesting data there. But just to, just to share a couple of, sort of data points on that, of the 20 countries that we survey around the world, ranging from Australia and Indonesia to the United States uh, and Brazil and Mexico uh, and China, the UK is the lowest of those 20 countries. Trust in media as an institution is at 28%. Um, the only good news out of that is that uh, it is higher than it has been on the mean average of the past seven years, and its low point in this country was in 2007, when trust in media was at 19%, and that was in the sort of dying days of the Blair government. Um, and interestingly, trust in all information sources has fallen. Newspapers are down 10% this year to 19%, radio down 20% to 33%, and TV down 4% to 33%. 33%, excuse me. So there is a collapse in trust in media, and yet, I, again, as I say, I don't think that is a, an indication of permanent decline. And then that brings me on to my sort of next point, which is what is the media anyway, and what is in decline? Because ultimately, we are all media now. Whether we're companies, whether we're individuals, whether we're publishing organisations, we all have the ability, the right, and the access and the distribution to publish. And if you tie that back to the trust data, we know that 38% of people trust uh, someone like themselves, so it's peer-to-peer -peer communication, rather than 28% of people who trust the media. So there's an interesting dynamic at play there. And, and that then says to me that, again, we may not be in permanent decline, but there's certainly this reforestation taking place, a reshaping of what's going on. And actually, just picking up on something that Claire said, I'm not sure that the fourth estate is doomed, but I would say the traditional model of advertising, whether that's broadcast advertising or print advertising, is pretty much doomed. Uh, and I don't think it will last another decade, uh, if another five years. Uh, and the only challenge that comes out of the fact that we're all media now, in my mind, is what do we begin to call stuff? Um, Joe and I were talking about this earlier. You know, when the FT has a broadcast channel um, or when the Times has its online content portal, uh, at what point do they stop being TV stations? At what point do they stop being newspapers? And do they simply become some form of new media? To the question, what can we do about it? I'd just like to make two points. Uh, and last time I brought this up, John coruscated me um, subsequently for the point that I made, so I'll bravely step into this territory again. Um, I think the fourth estate can and should be a force for good. I think too often, certainly in this country, we've seen the fourth estate as people who can rightly hold people to account when it's right to hold people to account. But sometimes, especially at times of what would be sort of great crisis, uh, I think that sometimes the fourth estate can sort of jump and put the boot in rather than necessarily try and look optimistically as to what it can contribute, whether it's about the financial crisis, whether it's around global warming, or today, whether it's about the future of our democracy. And I suppose the challenge for me is in Obama's new era of citizenship and responsibility, what role does the fourth estate play in that? And then pick up on Andrew's point about Digital Britain. I think Digital Britain is both a social responsibility and a civic responsibility, and I worry that it's being seen as an entertainment responsibility. Um, and I think that you know, it's about access to news. 
uh, but it's also, I think, about the Reformation and how the Fourth Estate, considering that the people, the citizenship can become that Fourth Estate, as we're all media now, can begin to help reform our institutions of government and even business as well. Uh, and then finally, my last point is really the, the piece that brings us all together, which is the content revolution that has to, has to uh, you know, come alongside this reforestation that I talked about, um, and, uh, and the digital chaos that Andrew mentioned of 100,000 years of, of DVDs. And there's this quote which um, I borrowed from an article in The Guardian yesterday, which I think sums it up, so I'm going to read it verbatim. We're in the middle of the greatest increase in expressive capability in human history. More people can communicate more things to more people than at any time. It's possible to lament a media culture with this many new participants. Average quality fails, august businesses are destroyed. But then, uh, to the point that Eleanor made, this also happened with the onset of printing. The question isn't whether we want a medium that lets everyone produce content, because we've got it. The question now is how we use it. Robert, thank you very much. Um, I'm, I'm glad that Anne is ending this because she, uh, Anne McAvoy, is one of our most authoritative political columnists and commentators on radio and television. Uh, she's executive editor on the Evening Standard. She was a colleague of mine when we were both correspondents in Moscow, which, which prepared her for, for current life on the Evening Standard, <laughs> which the... Uh, and now owned by uh, Alexander Lebedev, late, late of Her Majesty's KGB, um, uh, and, and called by Anne's former editor, um, Veronica Wadley, Pravda. So from Pravda, Anne McElvoy. Здравствуйте. Um, I'm going to speak in a, a personal capacity, if that's okay. So I'm speaking really as a columnist and just... I don't know what I think, and um, because no one really knows, I think, what the new, <laughs> the new standard thinks, and it's not really my job to speak for them. I just wanted to make that clear. Um, well, it's nice that John introduces me by reminding me um, how old I'm getting, but I did wander around very pleasantly between 1989 and 1994, uh, starting in East Germany and, and ending up in Russia, uh, covering the collapse of communism and... Um, often writing stirring pieces about the transition to the market economy and how much had to be learned from the West only 20 years later to be taken over by a Russian. So what goes around comes around in media, let me tell you. Uh, and I think that probably makes, uh, makes clear some of the, the, the points that other panellists have made tonight, including Claire's very good description um, of the nanosecond in which we we find everything changing incredibly fast and in many ways I think we have been ill-prepared for it and um, one of the reasons that there's such sort of shock, shock if not awe in the media is how quickly things have changed about uh, everything from ownership structures, the idea that um, Lord Rothermere would be prepared to sell the standard to anyone um, and let alone that a Russian could own it. Sell. Sell. Well, it was sold. No, it wasn't. No, no, it wasn't. It, it wasn't. It, it, that's one of the great, uh, great modern urban myths. No one knows what it was. Well, and it, they'll say a lot of things. But anyway, I'll just carry on, and then you can disagree later. Um, but it was, it was divested of for a as yet undisclosed summerlord. Uh, and this just goes just to show, you know, that I, I'm always so very worried about the trophy asset argument. It's always worried me, and it worries me particularly when it caught, caught up with us. I think this idea that people will simply want to own things because they're trophy assets, we have to be quite cautious about. There has to be a discussion about the future of 
newspapers, just to start with them, which is not just saying, oh, lots of rich men want to own them. I mean, we also see the O'Reilly family at least taking an arm's length distance from the independent. We don't know what its fate will be. Again, that argument, oh, it's a great visiting card. Well, hell, you know, you can get a visiting card for a lot less. You really can. So I think this has been a not particularly productive way for us to think about what it is that we do, and we're all uh, struggling in, in our own ways to, to come up with some alternatives. Let's have a look at what's on our side to start with. Yeah, we speak a good day, a very good day for the press at Westminster. Of course, there'll be other days when you know, we don't look so good, but this, it is, this is not unimportant. When we say, what is, this, the base title is about the fourth estate, and the fourth estate really means the, whatever you define it, printed word, holding power to account. And have we done that on this occasion and everything connected to it? Yes, we have. Yes, we can, as Mr. Obama would, would say. And that is not an unimportant thing when it comes to saying what can we offer into the future that perhaps would not be so easy to get out of other models. Um, I'm actually very much in favour of multi-platform models which combine the internet papers and as yet unthought of or the beginnings of, of other new technologies. But I do think, and I think a number of people have said it very eloquently tonight, that, that something has to be at the heart of it which has time and resource to investigate, time and resource on its side. Um, in the world of Twitter, of the blogosphere, of the citizen journalist and of uh, the PR can complement that but I'm absolutely confident that it can't replace it or replace it uh, satisfactorily. There's also terrible irony here. You know, we, we are striving, I think there is more consensus about this politically than ever, to have a highly educated population, more people with access to education. Just when we educate them, we read, what are we going to give them to read? You know? So the, there is something there that, that we, we can be confident about, that we can offer and we can finesse, but we have to be much quicker, I think, to adjust to changes. We've got to see them coming faster and uh, not simply say, well, why don't we just stick with what we're doing and then we'll remain trophy assets and then everything will be all right. I think some of the, the, the recent sort of hurly-burly in the market suggests that that might not be the case. Um, I'm very suspicious, I should say, of... I'm sorry, I just want to check of Andrew's argument. Uh, I might as well just cut to the chase on this one. And this, this is the state-subsidised media... Uh, which has these civic goals and it would be jolly nice. I think Robert also um, sort of speaks for a little bit for this view. Um, civic goals, we all agree what we are and then we subsidise them. And to me, I'm about to offend every Brownite in the room and probably anyone really religious, so close your ears now, but it's a bit like when Gordon Brown speaks about God and you know he means some sociological left-wing God who will tell you what to do and that'll be fine. And we'll all agree with that and everyone will be happy with it, but of course... <laughs> Uh, and it just makes me uh, nervous, and I think for good reason. Uh, I think where the debate has actually moved on a little bit further in America on this, you're beginning to see a backlash from liberals and from, from some left-wing liberals. I was very pleased to see that, because I think the idea that we could sort of all agree what should be subsidised, what would come out of it, what we think a civic goal is. I mean, there are plenty of people down at Westminster tonight who think it's absolutely terrible what's happened to them. They really feel they've been done over by the press. And the, a lot of them would not have had freedom of information to start with. Leave aside the fact that you can definitely have an argument about that's right to buy information, but this was information that was only half, halfway going to be published. It was only going to be published because people pressed for freedom of information, including, uh, um, I think, um, some newspapers, and I must say they're all on the left of centre, uh, more actively in Britain. 
<laughs> That's the only reason it happened. It wasn't because they wanted to give you the information. I mean, really. So the idea that these people are going to be generous, wise, and uh, all-seeing enough to uh, be able, let's say, as, as bearers of the state or whoever was going to do this sort of transaction to fund uh, the media, I think, I think it's just a very wrong way to go. So it leaves us looking for money in a big way. Um, I have some interest. I'm just, I'm just just throwing out an idea here, and uh, I mean it's one that one sort of wondered whether we'd ever sort of come to the, the begging bill. But I think we may have done on investigative journalism. I, mean, I think it's interesting that Ariana Huffington is talking about the need, uh, perhaps, for rich people to support investigative journalists. I mean, part of the time we should be investigating the rich people, but maybe someone else, someone else can pay for that, and it's all going to get very complicated. It's going to make state of play look like really sort of a straightforward drama. Um, but I think that there might be some, some truth in that, you know, that if you have people, for instance, who have a particular interest um, in green issues and are prepared to pay for investigative journalism that helps that cause, I don't really particularly see a problem with it. I think we would just have to go all out for transparency about who's funding what. But in a way, how different is it from corporations funding newspapers who have particular interests and it's generally known or nodded to or pointed out by their enemies. So that, I mean, in a way, I'm more comfortable with that as a possible way to go than, than with the, the state doing it. Um, just a word of self-criticism on newspapers, which, um, gosh, do we ever do that? We don't really like doing this. But I think the one thing that has... Disturbing. And I always spoke for a very robust British press against a very boring continental press, and, and I still do, and I, notwithstanding trust ratings, Rob. I mean, these are, some societies are more inclined to trust than others, and we're a bit trust-averse, and I think that's a good thing about British society, so I don't take trust rating very seriously. But I do think there's been a tendency, and I've seen it uh, where I've worked, I've seen it elsewhere, which is for newspapers who should know better to sometimes print or get involved in printing stories that they sort of know aren't true because they sell. And I, I think that is something that, you know, at some point we're going to have to put up our hands much more about. There's a classic one, which is the 12-year-old who did not father the child. If you'd asked anyone in the newsroom who knew a bit about the story, they would probably tell you, no, they didn't think the 12-year-old fathered the child. But it was a great story. And there was a sort of, well, let's not poke into it too much in case it's not true. Now, I know there will always be papers that will do that speculative journalism. But I think it is, it is kind of wrong for titles who, however one puts it, pompously should know better, to do it. And I think you know, that also some of the stories around the Maddy uh, affair fell into that category. And I think there's something, and I really am the last one to be self-lacerating about um, the, the British press. I've, I think I frequently cross um, swords with, with John about this. I think it holds up incredibly well against the tedious and self-serving uh, continental press in many regards, European continental press, but I do think that, you know, if we waste and squander our own authority and confidence, it will come back to bite us, and that may be just be something that um, we should talk about. I guess it's almost time for me to, to wrap up. So the other area that I think we haven't touched on, but I, I might just sort of finish on, is this is not just a problem for the commercial press. It's a problem, the big elephant in the room, which we have not discussed tonight, is the, one of the reasons commercial press and, and online has a big problem, is the BBC. And the BBC is uh, relatively unquestioned in this debate, but takes all of our money in the licence fee and invests it in whatever it fancies doing in media. And this is, I think, increasingly a problem when you look at something like, if you're trying to run, I'm saying, I really want multi-platform products, I would love it if you know, any of the titles that I'd been working for were sort of quick on it and wanted to to move on it faster, but it is a problem when you have a 
huge website, fantastic reach, great resources, paid for by all of us, which doesn't need any advertising. And I think that you know, we're beginning to see that debate, and it will. I think it was always put in the corner. Well, that's Rupert Murdoch. You know, well, he doesn't really like it anyway. And we've got to be more open about it if we're in the spirit to look at how things work and are going to work if they do. And Claire's wrong, and we've got more than five minutes to midnight. Um, but it, it does seem to me. I think Cameron setting the signal on freezing the license fee for five years is going to begin to sort of bring up that question. And when people talk about a paywall, which I, you know, Rupert Murdoch's been right about almost everything else in, uh, in the media in terms of the commercial side. But it's very difficult to see how even Rupert can whack up a paywall when the BBC is doing it free and on the scale that it is doing so. So don't put all your um, moral pressure, please, only on um, the private realm. I think private and public are absolutely interrelated in media and in the future of media. And the media we all deserve and that we deserve to, to pass on to those who consume us. And we have to look at our problems as interrelated. We have to look at them together in the same spirit of critical optimism and hope for the best. And thank you very much for ending, even on a critically optimistic note, and for reminding us that our traditions in newspapers are not to let the facts get in the way of the stories. That's what we always say on the Financial Times. Um, <laughs> We want to want to open this up to the the audience. We've got um, until half past eight, and we can go longer if the discussion is animated and heated as I expect it to be. So, but when you um, when you uh, are called, please uh, say who you are and where you're from. Um, let's start over there. David Seymour, formerly uh, political editor of the Mirror Group. Um, what's extraordinary about this is that. The, the media, the press in particular, is suddenly waking up to the fact of what's happened. And I, I, I mean, I actually went eight years ago and said to the then chief executive of, of uh, Trinity Mirror, um, what is this company? If this company are printers, there is no future for it. If this company are, are providers of knowledge and information, there's a fantastic future. And since then, the national newspapers have spent two billion pounds building and buying new presses, in which Rupert Murdoch, I mean, I agree with what Anne said, you know, Murdoch is the greatest media mogul the world has ever known, but he spent 800 million of it on presses, which are obsolete before they're built. And the fact is that the reason I could say this eight years ago was that I discovered that Trinity Mirror was developing, and presumably Associated was as well, and News International, a sort of a, a you know, flexible screen that people could carry around. And the idea that we are going to go on picking up those great bundles of newspapers with all respect to Eleanor's Saturday Times, you know, the Sunday Times and all these great bundles of newspapers, only some of which we read, and that we're going to go on doing that, and, few, and in a few years we're going to go on doing that, and that, that we're not going to use all the advantages of the internet, which can't be used in a fixed product, which is what a newspaper is, is absolutely fanciful. And if the, if, the, if the national newspaper industry had spent that £2 billion on developing something, which maybe could have given to everybody. Everybody would have had a flexible screen, like we get given the, you know, all those papers we were forced on us as we came here this evening. Then, then we would all have access to all sorts of things. And I, and to me that we've got it. When we talk about the future, of the, fourth, the fourth estate is about journalism and about journalists and about how we provide information. And the the, the real thing that that 
that we ought to be turning our minds to, everybody should be turning their minds to, is how do you fund that in future? And if we go on funding it through printing newspapers, and I, Claire said 60% of the cost of newspapers is, is people, um, I would, would be very wary of um, querying anything that Claire said, but I suspect that, that that doesn't completely include the cost of, you know, it may be 60% of the cost of producing the initial newspaper, but what about the cost of the paper, the ink, the, the, the fans that go there, the wholesale, the retail, the people in the streets? I suspect that, in fact, the cost of the actual cost of the journalism is probably, I'm guessing, 20, 25% of newspapers. You can produce stuff really cheaply. And I think that is the future. And what I want to know is what are the, are the commercial organisations, you know, what are associated newspapers, News International, and the rest of them doing about looking at the Guardian, looking at it. And, you know, maybe your organisation, John, should be going down that line. Thanks, David. Uh, someone from this block, lady over there. Hi, I'm Christina Patterson from The Independent. Um, well, I came here tonight hoping for a little ray of hope, and I feel like shooting myself now. Um, what It seems to me that um, the subsidy model simply, the public subsidy model is a no-goer, sorry, but I can't see that working in a million years. And I find the idea of certainly those of us who work for O'Reilly's trophy or Murdoch's trophy or whatever other trophy, you know, we all um, deal with the fact that we're trophies that may or may not be about to be tossed aside every day of our working lives and we live with that. It's a slightly depressing reality and it's not one I see as hugely hopeful for the future, but I guess it offers us the nearest we've got to a ray of sunshine all evening. But what nobody has actually talked about in relation to, everyone's talked about the need to, for, well, the disappearance of investigative journalism, but nobody's talked about writing, quality writing, and quality analysis, yes, but writing is nobody, and nobody has even raised the possibility that some human beings on this planet might want at some point in their lives in the future to pay for the pleasure of what is essentially an art form, whether the, the medium of it one could argue about endlessly, whether it's Tolstoy, whether it's, you know, within beautiful leather covers or whether it's on the internet, it kind of doesn't matter, but, but the words do matter. And it seems to me that we are looking if we pool the collective opinions of the panel at a world in which everyone expects certain things in life are free. We still expect to pay for our food and the roof over our head, but we don't expect to pay for our art or our writing or whatever triggers our thinking. Are we all really accepting that no one other than businessmen who want trophies or possibly benevolent governments whose subsidy would presumably take the, the form of some kind of ghastly arts council for newspapers with, you know, horrific bureaucrats, you know, making stupid tick boxes at every single point. Can, can, could somebody on the panel just sort of respond to that? Because I feel, I feel really, really depressed now. Well, you're on the independent. You're clearly you're... <laughs> uh, yeah, but I'll have one more and then, then I'm going to have three and then come back to the panel. Hi, uh, Steve Rubell from Edelman. Um, you know, I've been writing and thinking about what I call the attention crash, uh, you know, we, which is kind of the, un, the unwritten crash, right? We had the housing crash in the United States and uh, global financial crash, and, but there's, a, there's, a, there's an attention crisis in the world. And, uh, and so people are, are, I forget which panelists mentioned, are only going to go into the areas of interest and, and maybe very shallow at that. So my, my question is, is why are um, why is the media funding investigative journalism 
and uh, and seeming to hang its hat around that that's where the, the action is going to be, which I understand they're going to be able to bring more resources to bear there than, than the crowd could ever deliver uh, and more than Twitter could ever do, uh, at least on a global scale. But if if the money's not there and the eyeballs are shrinking, I mean, I now consume 95% of my news on, on my iPhone, um, and, it's, and it's very shallow with that. So if, I'm not going to pass any current, current events quiz tomorrow. Um, but I know what I need to know, and if the news is important, it'll find me. So, how do how why the investing in business models that are kind of for an, an era where people spent more time with media when when the when the the ball is kind of going somewhere else? Thanks. Claire has been pawing the ground, coming back. Uh, so, Claire, I, and, and Claire and then Eleanor uh, briefly, if you would, and then we'll go back to the audience. Claire. Well, I, I, I wanted to make a very heartfelt thank you to, to, to you for talking about the quality of the writing, because I, I actually love, love the quality of the writing. But I would say that, you know, it's far from over. I mean, there, this paid-for circulation is 11 million. There are 11 million people, or actually it's about 9 million, because there's some overlap. But so, so in fact, the paid-for model is still with us. Let's not forget it. And, you know, I think people are largely driven by the breadth, depth, and they're not necessarily driven by the investigative journalism per se. The other thing that nobody's mentioned here is, is that the other thing which has really attacked paid-for circulation is the freeze. In fact, in aggregate, the volume of newspapers is the same as it was in 2000. It just has a completely different composition. So let's not forget that it's the metro backed by the Daily Mail, backed by the Trinity Mirror Group, or, or other groups elsewhere, which, which are attacking the paid-for model as well, but also fulfilling a service to people because they are tackling one of the core issues in the whole environment, which is distribution and how to get people to connect with the product in an easy format. So that's all I want to say. Thank you very much for that point. And let, let's not forget that there is still a market for paid-for in this country. Well, uh, I, I mean, I'm the kind of only one on the panel who's actually kind of, you know, running you know, a newspaper. And I, I'm absolutely, you know, devoted to good writing and, you know, people being able to read things at length. I've just redone the Saturday Times and we brought back a broadsheet section, the Saturday Review, which does run much longer pieces than were ever in the Times before. I come from the Sunday Times and I edited the News Review and I believe passionately that there is a market out there for long reads. And I you know, this chap he's talking about getting all his news on his iPhone. Yeah, well, you get kind of two lines, but you don't find out anything about what's really going on. And I think that there's increasingly... The cost of that to the Times, sorry, but if we're looking at, you know, the independence losses are a drop in the ocean compared with the Times' losses. So, um, so, you know, that you say there's a market. There isn't a market. No, know, it's, not a, it's not a market that's paying Well, I can itself. tell you my circulation figures for, you know, this week, we're, we're up a year, I'm up, we're up year on no, your year. Your circulation figures are great, but they don't cover the cost of what you're... Publishing. Yeah, but the, but the point is that there's still there is a market out there. There are people who want to read it, and I'm being given the money to be able to bring yeah, exactly. that kind You're of content being given to, the money. That's, to people. That's the whole issue, and you're lucky you've got Rupert Murdoch. The, the issue is who is going to pay for this stuff. Yeah, in but the but what I'm I'm making a different point, which is that I think that there is an appetite still for longer reads. I won't read stuff at length on a computer screen. I don't like it. I still print things out. Mm. I read things in you know long things in magazines, or I read books, or you know. I, but I but I think that they're in, increasingly. The, and particularly the Sunday newspapers 
are bucking the trend. The Sunday Times circulation is up significantly, actually, mm. over the last year. And I think that's because increasingly people are getting their news on the move. And at, at the weekend, they actually want some time to reflect yeah. on all this barrage of information that they've been getting. And I ran News Review, which was a kind of real place where people could reflect and think about things, mm. kind of, and read things mm. at length. And I think that there is an absolute appetite for that. And I, I absolutely hate the thought that everything is going to be reduced to sound bites on mobile phones. And I think that, you know, increasingly as the world gets more complicated, you need to read things at length and take them in and understand them and read great writers doing that. And, you know, as a journalist, I've always been completely devoted to that idea. And long, you know, if Rupert Murdoch will go on paying for that, so even if it's subsidised, fantastic. You know, Robert. you should all buy it. Uh, and partly on, on, on this debate, because there is clearly going to be a, some sort of battle for the soul of journalism. Uh, at some point, and and people keep on talking about what role the market plays, and and the market is that simple mechanic of supply and demand, um, and of choice, and and I think that uh, I worry, I suppose, that whilst I absolutely support your call for craft and, and and for the love of writing and for the love of reading, there is a generation that's growing up that does want it in in sound bites, and at some point we're going to have to wake up and smell the coffee on that, and understand that's how people want to consume their their news, rather than necessarily just dictate it to them in the way that the fourth estate has traditionally done. I just want to actually come back on Andrew's point about, about subsidies, because I did actually want to say how appalling I thought that thought, thought, that thought was, um, uh, but for a slightly different reason. Uh, and it does go back to the events of today and, and, and the point that's being made earlier, um, uh, which is that was today a victory for the, for the press in terms of the resignation of the speaker, or was it a victory for the citizen? Uh, and what I mean by that is as we see a morphing between sort of traditional fourth estate and the citizen journalist, what we're going to see is the rise of accountability uh, in a much greater way. And, and, and that, in, in a digitally empowered space, that accountability extends not just from traditional journalists, but obviously to real people. And in that accountability, the political accountability, or the, the ability to hold politicians to account, is going to be key. We therefore can't have some sort of subsidies for those people because it will be inherently contradictory. I'm going to go back out to the audience and then come, when we come back, Andrew and Anne, I think we should, we should have... Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go over here first and then work, work my way around. I'm Monique Villa uh, from the Thomson Reuters Foundation. Uh, may I throw to the panel something that I've not heard, is that there is the newspaper and there is the newspaper industry. And these are two different things in my view. And the industry has resisted much better than the newspapers by creating and inventing the online world very well for the news. And uh, the most news, uh, the most read news on the web, be it in America with the New York Times, be it in, in London with The Guardian and The Telegraph, be it in France with Le Monde, be it in many other countries are the websites of the newspapers because they are speaking of good news and of quality news and they have been creative. So I am very optimistic against all of you, I must say, because I think that in the future, quality, journalis uh, quality journalism, and I cheer you, quality journalism will remain under another shape. It will be Kindle for one year, it will be something else, it will be whatever, but quality journalism will remain. And I think that the internet is just proving us that, that we still need good writing, that we still need ideas, that we still need clever packaging. Thank you very much for that word of cheer from our sponsor. 
gentleman over there. I'm James Woodhausen from uh, De Montfort University. I think the finances of the newspapers have never been worse. The influence uh, has never been bigger. Um, but I do think the literary standards are something to uh, worry about. And I was surprised that you, Robert, in your excellent remarks about the dangers to democracy of too much media power, said that we would have to uh, wake up and smell the coffee in relation to the youth. If you go to my website, that's presuming you can spell my name, uh, you'll find a piece from The Observer that had no fewer than 34 cliches uh, in it. And, um, you know, it's really quite something to believe that we should trim to the youth uh, and say, for example, as Andrew Ronsley did, um, to advertise the terrible state of public finances in neon lights and stick a kick-me-here sign to the backsides of both the Chancellor and the Prime Minister would unleash the bloodiest Whitehall spending negotiations in a generation. Below the radar, the Treasury is already trying to do some mild slashing and burning. Uh, I don't want to go that way. Uh, but I think, in fact, the problem is not just one of form, but of content. And uh, I think Anne was quite right to raise the elephant in the room with the BBC, but not just the BBC, and that is that the journalism of attachment pioneered by Martin Bell is really turning everybody into Julia's commentariat when they ought to be sticking to news. I asked the audience, whatever happened to swine flu? Remember that we were all going to have a relative or friend who would die of pig disease just two weeks ago. So great was the vehemence and belief of the news reporters uh, that this was a cause that really would lead to the death of millions, and now nobody can remember anything about it. Whatever happened to climate change, if you remember, and the BBC, in a, uh, a vehement outburst of advocacy, um, pu pulling on a few right-wing sceptics for a bit of balance, but generally going totally bananas about Whitehall and all of us being overwhelmed within a few years by 10 feet of water. That is the kind of declining content, not just in literary standards, that I think we really have to worry about. So I want to see better journalism, not just pursuing stories that we know to be untrue, although I think Anne's quite right about that, but actually better papers. Or is that too radical in 2009? We'll see. Thank you. My name's Pat Kane. Um, I'm a I was a founding editor of the, um, one of the founding editors of the Sunday Herald 10 years ago, 1999 in Scotland. I'm also a musician. I'm in a band called Hue and Cry. And believe me, the music business got its digital meltdown in early uh, with the arrival of Napster. Uh, there's an axiom that we all use in the music business at the moment, trying to figure out how we make any money out of anything. And it is this, uh, use what is ubiquitous to drive people to what is scarce. In music, that means everybody can steal music, can copy music that's completely gone out of a commodity form. What's authentic and scarce in music is performance, the event, the unique object. Map that over to journalism, I think we may be looking, one of the effects of the digital revolution may be a return to authenticity, an event for journalism. I think of Seymour, Seymour Hersh in The New Yorker breaking the Abu Ghraib pictures, I think, of the New York Times, the New York uh, Review of Books, going to town on further torture memos. We may be looking at an overall contraction in the institution that we call newspapers. We may be looking at a revival of what it is that journalists are ethically bound to do. And whatever the actual funding models for that are, um, look at it sociologically. I think the Sunday paper and the Saturday paper may have an, an existence as an event, as literally a physical event that lands on your lap. 
Weekly papers? I don't know. Sociologically, I'm at rest. At the weekend, sociologically, I'm all over the place Monday to Friday. So maybe that short-form news delivery format to the iPhone or whatever is more relevant for the daily paper. Uh, but I think this may be a moment for journalism to return to its authentic moment. Uh, and maybe a lot of crap, a lot of journalism, as Nick Davis puts it, will have to go by the by. And, arts, I mean, and I'm a great fan of writing. I'm a great fan of arts writing and feature writing. You know, as a, as a, as a section editor on the Sunday Herald, the amount of PR hopping and press release jumping and um, basically passive journalism that I was involved in. I was ashamed of that. I had to get out of it to write books and go back to music. So I think there's maybe an I think digital, the digital revolution may return journalism maybe to its 18th century coffee house pamphleteering basics at a lower cost base but at a higher truth level and a higher integrity level. It may be happening already, of course. I mean, when I began in journalism, I, almost no journalists wrote books apart from the memoirs of um, you know, my, my acquaintance with Churchill, kind of cosy Fleet Street stuff. Now, you know, I, I, I barely know a journalist who has not written a book. Um, and so journalism has already, in the last, what, 30, 40 years, moved into books uh, in a very substantial way. Uh, Anne, did you want to come back on any of these points? To come back, I thought it was a very interesting idea that you would use what was ubiquitous to, to sort of, but also to find out what people want that is scarce. I think that it's not that clear that you know, is it? I think that's a, a very, it's very, it's very on the way. It's very painful. Um, I want to just link some of these things to, to Christina's very good, good point that set us all going. I mean, I think a lot of these questions and comments have been about value and what is value outside a merely financial um, analysis of a value of, of a product. And yes, you know, very good writing um, is something to value and it is something that we should be proud of and that we should put a lot of effort into. But I, I just say, to, you know, let's not kid ourselves. It could be that this is an, an elite pursuit and that, that we maybe have to face this, that a lot of people are kind of happy to live without it. And uh, while well, we can make sure that they have access to it, and that, that it is absolutely well packaged and is there and can be you know, accessed by as many people as possible, I think this is sort of we have kidded ourselves for a long time. If you look at, you know, just look at the decline in, in what people are paid for good writing, you know, to be crude about it, what we were sort of paying freelancers towards the end of the, uh, of the, the old uh, evening standard. I shouldn't think it's, it's gone up radically in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> it was just in real terms, a very stark decline. So there is a value question there. Um, having said that, you know, I was just think, feeling quite sort of straightened about it and finger-wagging when the gentleman said that he got everything he needed on his iPhone and, and that if the news would find him even if it mattered. And then I thought, and you said you've got, you know, got to keep our eye on the ball. Well, what is this ball worth if you can't analyse it, if you can't read very, very well-written copy about it. If you can't have great jokes about it, I mean, what are you going to do with this two lines and bit of information apart from look at it? I mean, a budgerigar can look at its reflection in a mirror, but that doesn't, you know, doesn't make it satisfying. So I think there's somewhere in between, you know, the slightly romantic view of the value of the written words and yourself, you know, I mean, you, know you, you did put it very, very crisply that we didn't really need much of this as long as it was two lines on the iPhone. I, mean, I do think that in between, you know, when you, we have, fortunately, highly educated public, we're reasonably, still just about reasonably prosperous country, and I think that we will find our way in the middle. Maybe it will be that the, the long form uh, stays at weekends and that weekday papers turn into something else, but I still think there's something there of value to, to be diagnosed, and we've got to work out what it is. Andrew? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so I guess I should uh, 
justify my comments on subsidies. Um, <laughs> but primarily to act as uh, devil's, ad devil's advocate, you know, think through what, what would that work. And obviously, it's a very controversial suggestion. You know, would, does it make sense for the government to bail out the media? You know, in, in a sense, no. And there's obvious questions about impartiality and independence. But I think there's actually a very long history of the government helping the news media. You know, Murdoch was given huge help with enterprise zones in the 80s. Um, newspapers are still, still VAT exempt. Um, there's ways of indirectly funneling support, for example, through advertising. You know, the government's now the biggest spender of advertising in the country, more than Procter & Gamble, uh, £400 million pounds a year. And, and so, no, 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 I mean, but in the region... They spend it on their poodles. <coughs> well, it's not, that's not... Across the board, does it mean in some cases it's still? No, no they spend it on the media. Don't come on. Okay, well, okay. Um, I think there's ways of doing it indirectly. The, the French model is quite interesting. The way you know Sarkozy is giving one-year subscription for 18-year-olds to any newspaper of their choice. It was a demand-driven approach where the youth can choose newspaper. Um, that's state aid. I mean, that's is, would that work here? Who knows? Um, training. I think that's a, a key area of support. If we if we're going to value writing, quality writing having the time to develop new skills of telling stories on the internet, you know, video and audio, new ways of writing, um, and in long form. Maybe we need to um, think about funding that, because across the industry, training budgets are being frozen or slashed. That, to me, doesn't seem like a very uh, uh, dangerous way of funneling state aid to the news media. Tra training is definitely uh, undergoing cutbacks. So I think it, it would only work if it was very indirect, very um, arm's length, um, there's some interesting models in, in Wales and Kent where grants have been given to fund local forms of news provision. Um, Kent TV is one example, and uh, the Welsh Books, Count, Books Council recently funded a two-year contract for a Welsh-language news service, um, which was a, a grant awarded by the Welsh Council. So there are some examples I think it's worth considering rather than abandoning outright. Could I, could I just, well, actually, on the point about uh, the giveaway of newspapers, I mean, that scheme is actually going to be in place next year in Scotland or, or later this year. I mean, there is a scheme to give every 17-year-old weeks and weeks of newspapers in order to see whether it triggers any reading right. action, you know. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, so that's going to be tried and tested, and we'll see, for, hope the best. I just wanted to touch on two issues. Firstly, uh, the, the lady's uh, enthusiasm for website readership and the BBC issue, which are, which are some, so, somewhat overlapping. I must say the decline in circulation and advertising is happening in the US despite the lack of existence of the BBC. And I would strongly urge those people, and I love the BBC and I love the press, I would say that those people who believe that the BBC is distortive are not looking at other markets carefully enough. On the point, and I think that if the BBC took any other form of income than a compulsory tax, we'd really have problems because we'd have even more overcapacity of advertising inventory which is monumental. On the point of the websites, I have to say that actually if you analyze as we have the traffic to every single one of those websites, which is so quality, The Guardian and so on, first of all, 70% of their readership is abroad and it doesn't monetize. Just look at the ad network placement um, happening in the US on, you know, I think it's completely non-relevant. I promise you, with the amount of inventory that's being added, The Guardian is making tuppence halfpenny from all of these wonderful people all over the world who want to read The Guardian because it's a voice of reason and, and, and freedom. Right. That's the point. The second point is, is, is that actually when you look at the actual traffic, right, they're all looking at the same things, the same celeb photos, all the stuff that has to be bought in. As I said, nobody's reading long-firm. I said 
readers spend an average, online readers spend an average of five minutes a month online. So it's really quick. You just pick it up, it's really quick. And secondly, the income level that's generated by that online reader is only five pounds, whereas on average in the UK, any newspaper can generate 100 pounds a year out of a regular reader. Completely yeah. different deal. Lydia, the far back, the back. Martinson from The Guardian. Um, I'm a journalist, so obviously I support everybody here who says, who's talked about the value of journalism. I disagree with Roberts that this week's events have been um, a triumph for citizen journalism. I think it's been a triumph for an old-fashioned newspaper and a great series of stories. Um, I have two things, but I have to respond to what Claire's just said about The Guardian. Um, one is I'd really like to hear uh, what the panel think about The View having just said what I did about journalism about the idea that we in the UK are slightly over-serviced when it comes to newspapers. I absolutely agree with Anne that compared to our continental and in fact our American um, peers, the UK has a fantastic, thriving, ultra-competitive press. The issue now though, do we have too much press? Can we actually, a nation of 60 odd million, actually put up with this amount of press? And is it right that in this sort of desperate economic times, some of them will actually fold? Um, on the point that Claire's just made, though, and I'm afraid I came very late and missed Claire's um, uh, analysis, uh, what you just said about The Guardian getting tuppence apenny from its um, readers abroad, don't you think, as any media group, you have to look at where the growth is? And at the moment, nobody has quite worked out, even the great Rupert Murdoch, how we make money online, but that what you have to do is try to get a brand that works globally and works for an, an audience which is international, and that is the web. One more here. Hey, before we go. Uh, Neil Stewart from uh, Policy Review and Policy Review TV. Um, uh, first point to support Anne about the BBC sucking oxygen out of the online world. It wasn't just regional uh, uh, newspapers and television and other people that were uh, quite pleased by the restrictions that were put on the BBC, but little guys like us that are trying to do narrow casting and build things up. And I think that is a big issue that's got to keep running. Um, secondly, uh, this week's triumph of the fourth estate, uh, it is a great moment, but when I landed back from America, I was staggered to find that the Daily Telegraph had actually become the Daily Mail, because uh, I wouldn't have expected the Telegraph as a broadsheet to have played things quite the way that they have, say, if it had been eight or nine years ago. And the competition seems to have been migrating everybody towards that space so it's you know whatever is the story whether it's the 12 year old um, you know did they or didn't they father it or whether it's the expenses thing and how that goes it's a big moment the tragedy that we seem to be talking about here today is not about the decline of newspapers it's about the fear of the loss of quality writing and quality news but what if that's only been a period for the past 20 years we have had this fantastic period where Newspapers have differentiated themselves by lifestyle, by different kinds of writing, and I think that is why the weekends, where quality writing will survive opposite very expensive adverts in magazines, and it will be carried once a week, there will still be a space for all of that. Uh, I'm optimistic that people will find the new segments. My idea is that we should set up a new Scott Trust, and we should have... John on it, and uh, we should have uh, you know, Peter Oborn and a variety of others would be locked in a room, and each week they would fight, and they would pick 
the 20 best things that they would aggregate and put online for us. I would visit that every week and it would keep quality journalism and quality writing alive. But, you know, I don't know where we'll end up in the end, but I am optimistic. But it's not going to be the current newsprint model and it's not going to happen every day. But uh, I am optimistic, but I'm, I'm interested. I'm not sure people ever really bought newspapers really for the news, but the news and good writing have had a great 30 years, uh, and now that's over, and people who are interested in it are going to have to find other places for them. Thanks, Neil. Uh, Nico McDonald, I worked in uh, digital publishing for 20 years, in fact, working on the first cold set Saturday Review, I seem to remember, many years ago, and I chair the Media Futures Conference. I think the point I wanted to make uh, kind of follows Neil's point in some ways, and Claire's points. I think we're clearly, until last October, no less wealthy than we were, and we're less prepared to spend money on media, or at least news-type media, and why is that? And I don't think we've had a proper explanation of that. I would disagree with Neil that I think there's a decline in a politically engaged mass society which really started at the beginning of the 20th century and uh, ended maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And I think it was that kind of society which was interested in current affairs, it was actively engaged in the world and it wanted to know what was going on. And we're moving back to a situation which is more like the mid-19th century, a more elite model of news perhaps, which is, I don't think, desirable, but perhaps slightly inevitable. So I don't think this problem is actually soluble within the media sector itself. I think it's soluble with us as citizens trying to recreate a public sphere, uh, and that will demand a more engaged, intelligent, informed, long-form media. Um, but I think there is a, uh, another problem, which is that, in fact, at the level of functionality, the media does a really terrible job, and I've worked on many of the websites and newspapers that... In the old days, the format of the newspaper was very easy to use, as was broadcast media. The format of online is not easy to use, it's new. We in the media do not know how to do that because we've had for so long formats which work and were a no-brainer. And because our organisations are editorially dominated, we've been very poor at understanding technology and design and how to make those work for real people. And we've got to get a lot better at that. Even if what we're carrying is not necessarily what people want, we could at least make a better job of actually presenting it to them in, in, a, in an intelligent way. And I think there are some rays of light uh, at the end of the tunnel, uh, to use a James Woodhouse-ish cliché, uh, or an uh, Andrew Rawnsley cliché. Uh, we could become niche players, as we said, which Neil and Anne have talked about. We could become curators, which was Neil's idea, again. And I think that's an important thing we do a really terrible job of, quite frankly, still. Uh, or we could become event-type things that Pat Kane suggested. So there are some ways out, but I don't think the problem is soluble within the industry. But I would like some pushback. I'm sure Neil would disagree with me. Well, that's to say that uh, in the last, what, ten years, two mon big monthly magazines have appeared in this country, uh, the, the, the last, latter of them standpoint in the last year. So there still seems to be, I, I don't think either of them are making any money, but there are people who are prepared to subsidise long-form journalism analysis and so on, prospect and standpoint, who have appeared, uh, the New Statesman, against all odds, is still going, and the Spectator is, is, is growing. <coughs> the Economist's sales are going up. So... Long-form journalism seems still to be okay. Sorry, stay where you are. I'm, I'm Zoe Smith from ITV News Online. I don't normally speak at these sort of events, but after the attacks on people under 30, I feel d compelled to defend myself about chewing to the youth and ideas that we don't read. I just really don't think that that's true at all. I mean, the sort of people that consume their news on an iPhone, that guy felt so bad he had to leave. I mean, that, the fact is, the fact is that not, not everyone goes to, no, not everyone buys newspapers, not everyone that reads content online necessarily wants to print it out. And I think the fact 
fact is that there is a market that consumes news in a slightly different way. And you could do what Sarkozy does and gives 18-year-olds um, subscription, subsidized subscriptions to read newspapers. But Facebook and MySpace and YouTube don't have to get subsidies in order to get millions of people to log on to them online. So maybe if, we, if we're looking at a successful model, maybe we need to adapt the sort of content that we're looking at, still having the traditional values of journalism, but realizing the way in which you communicate with your audience differs if you're looking to kind of have a sustainable model that attracts people under 30. Thanks, Zoe. Could you pass the forward to Julia? We'll have the last and then over to our panel for the last word. Uh, Julia Hobsbawm, Editorial Intelligence. Well, we are part of, I think, this new remodelling that we've all talked about. We read and summarise 50,000 words of comment a day. We archive our own content, which de facto depends hugely on published journalism. We are aggregating our own content, and there is a market for it. But that market is often twinned with an appetite for two other bits of the trinity that I think belongs to the new face of journalism, which is printed journalism, blog journalism, and the role of citizens and people. And it's what I would call the book group effect. You don't just go to a book group to read a book. You go to a book group to have the referral and the recommendation of a particular book and to talk to others about it and to sort of hang out with them. And what we're finding is that people want to consume journalism both for Christina's point about its meaning, its emotional value, the reason why the commentators are such valuable assets to newspapers is because they make you feel things passionately like a novelist does, like a film does, like poetry does. They make you resonate with an argument or react violently against it. And at the same time, they want to share that information. And I'm not... Uh, uh, you know, I think it's a simplification to say long forms out, short forms in, because it's a mixed economy. One of the reasons why the blogs work so well is because they share links. And in fact, Twitter's main raison d'etre is for people to post links to long form pieces. Now, whether statistically they don't read polemicists online as much as they do on the page, that's probably right. But somewhere there is this new emerging short form, long form with real interaction in the middle. Now to some extent that's taking place uh, as a substitute for real time on TV, which is why Telegraph TV and all the other medias are, are going into that. But you know, communities looking and hearing arguments face to face like this group here, downloaded on podcasts. It's all about you know, the I word, interactivity. Now, whether that means the economics are going to survive long term or whether, as people have pointed out, you're going to have just much smaller circulations. You know, quite a lot of novels make it big on short print runs, but they're still influential. Their writers still go on to have huge careers. So I guess I'm coming up with the mixed economy argument, new forms of content shared in live form. Julia, many thanks. Um, our panel, from the, starting from the other end, uh, and therefore with Anne. Um, I wonder if we're not, we are going to aggregate ourselves to death. Um, I was just wondering are there any limits to aggregation because obviously it's something that um, it's relatively easy to, to do notwithstanding Nico's um, point that everything could be done rather better and our functionality and websites and things is, is, is still uh, pretty undeveloped as in a way you might expect for such a recent technology but I, just, I do think of some of the great arguments that you're going to see in the next few years will be about how much content can be aggregated or to use a less posh word ripped off 
from other people and put where. Um, and I, I imagine, you know, regardless of whoever comes up with a model to save uh, the economics of the industry, that that will that will be a pretty big argument. And it does. Uh, Jane, I like Jane Martinson's point. I mean, are we um, uh, super served? Um, yes. Thank God. Um, I don't know for how much longer. But actually, the super, you know, one of the things that has made the the, the British press, I think. What has in a way saved it from itself, to, to be less self-praising, is this rabid competition between the titles. And I think it's been absolutely great. And it's been a great period. And, and if it can't all survive, let's, for heaven's sake, let's somehow try to take the, the best out of that. And I just wonder on the... I think I'm going to end with a rather trivial point, but I just do wonder if you subsidise papers for 17, 18-year-olds. And let's try it. Let's try anything. Um, Claire, Claire can report back and we can hear from... So, because he's France, but I just find if you subsidise anything for teenagers, they'll go and do the opposite. So, um, maybe we have to make them contraband, you know, and then they'll take it all to their room. <laughs> Leave it there. Robert, um, just to, to clarify a point on the, from the journalist and the Guardian, I didn't say it was a victory for system journalism. Far from it. It was clearly a, a, what I was questioning was it a victory for the press or a victory for the citizen not citizen journalists. That was the distinction. And that really brings me on to my point about the role that the fourth estate plays within a democracy and some of the, the, the themes that, that have been going around in the question and answers. Um, I think really what it means is that we can't be elitist. There is a new democracy within the fourth estate. Uh, and I think we have to cease any elitist thinking either within our content or within our distribution. I think the point I was trying to make earlier is, is really it's about accountability, whether it's accountability through the traditional fourth estate, as we would see it, or through citizen journalists, and that is where they hold institutions and governments and the speaker to account. I think, funnily enough, the BBC has a role to play within that accountability. I can't believe that I'm sitting here uh, and my business partner of 25 years will hear me defend the BBC probably for the first time in that quarter of a century. But I think what's interesting is that either that Anne, as a journalist, or Robert, as a citizen, now has the ability through the media to hold the BBC to account in a way that it hasn't been held to account before. And I think, finally, the point that, that just needs to be emphasised is that we're in an age of reference, not an age of deference any longer. And I think that, again, democratises both the media as as we know it and the content that we produce. Robert, thank you. Claire? That's great. Um, I just wanted to also pick up on, on, on the point made by the lady from The Guardian that she's absolutely right. The UK has more spent per capita on TV production, on radio, on newspapers, on magazines than any nation upon the planet Earth. We are so overserved, and that was really sustained by an advertising ecology and also by the English language and the fact that all the tycoons of the world want to make it big in the US and also big in London, right? As indeed we've discovered with the Pravda thing. I mean, you know, why is it a trophy asset to have the Evening Standard? It's because the Evening Standard is in London. It's not in Dundee. Um, so, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> so so I, think, I think that's definitely right. And I think that, you know, the diminution in the number of media, you know, it's not going to cause flow through right, left, and center. And what we're seeing certainly in France is when media uh, allocation of advertising changes. For instance, the state channels lost a whole slug of advertising. That, that TV advertising, which was supposed to go to Sarkozy's pals at and M6, it disappeared. Right, it's gone. So I think that we do have, to Robert's point, very much to look at a world in which all forms of traditional advertising are in decline, and they will only sustain a much smaller number of media. But the UK is like got a long way to go before it's anywhere near the media density 
of which is quite thin of the continent or indeed of, of other nations where a lot of media are completely nascent. We've got a long way to go before we lose our democratic oomph. Clear, many thanks. Andrew. <clears throat> yeah, so I guess I, I'll be known as the guy that put forward subsidies as the answer, <laughs> which is a bit disappointing. I think my main point was to just to think we need to look at all the options you know, um, that are available to government and the industry working together. Um, to think openly and dispassionately about all the, all the um, different routes forward. And to, refer, to return to Robert's earlier geographical metaphor of reforestation, uh, yes, there are some areas that are reforesting, but there are, there are also areas of drought. And um, we, need to, we need to find ways of irrigating those areas that did, did perform you know, an important civic function, ways of encouraging that kind of function in the future. Um, I think, you know, returning to the idea about another Scott Trust, that may be an interesting model. Can we increase charitable giving around journalism, for donations, philanthropy, I don't know. Um, you know, in the US, there are interesting foundations which uh, support a range of training initiatives, a range of new media models. Um, you know, the Knight Foundation, we don't have anything like that here. Maybe if we had something like that, it would help um, innovation at a grassroots level. Um, so I think, you know, the, the main, my main point in the book was to try and think openly um, about ways forward, not... Um, wasn't attached to any particular idea like subsidies. We may need them yet. Andrew, thank you. Well, I, I began this debate by being optimistic about the future of newspapers, and actually, despite the depressing stuff which has come from the panel and some of the audience, I still feel optimistic. I think that there's a, a huge kind of need out there for newspapers to act as filters, whether they're in printed form or on the web, that there is a kind of, you know, a hunger for quality reads which let people understand the complicated world that we live in, and I don't see that going anywhere. On the subject of bulk, I completely agree with the girl from The Guardian. I came into my office on Monday morning to a whole huge round table filled with all the things from the, new, from the weekend's newspapers which I was supposed to have read and there's like a kind of you know towering mountain of them and you talk of deforestation that's where all the trees are going in a different kind of way so I think that yes there's probably definitely some room for some you know some kind of rationalisation and these huge things are probably unsustainable with the kind of ad revenue streams that we're looking at but I really passionately believe that there's an appetite out there for for understanding and for great writers telling us the truth that we need to go forward and live kind of fruitful lives and to, and to speak truth to power. You began optimistically and you ended optimistically. Thank you, Eleanor. Uh, uh, tomorrow at 3.30 in Portcullis House, um, attended by two MPs, so you can bring your rotten fruit, there is uh, uh, editorial intelligence with Sky News this time, has uh, got another debate it's the expenses scandal. How can the reputation of politics be restored? 3.30 tomorrow at Portcullis House. And remember, for those of you who have, and all of you should have, on your seats, interested in contributing, you who are interested in carrying on this debate in practical work, please fill in your details and leave it somewhere prominent before you leave. You've been a lovely audience. It's been a tremendous debate. Many, many thanks. And thank you, above all, to our panel. Mm -hmm.